Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to our Dhamma session Wednesday evening. I'm joined as usual by Chris, Max, and Olivia. Uh, and I'm no longer broadcasting, so uh, and I'm no longer Chris is now doing the broadcasting, so. which means this is an experiment to see how this works. Chris, is, this is his first time actually sending the broadcast, so everything's out of my hands now. All I do is watch and sit and talk and listen. And we all try to be as mindful as we can of all of it. So. If you don't have any questions, you just sit back and listen, close your eyes, sit upright perhaps, cross your legs, bring your mindfulness to the stomach and begin to watch the breath. When the breath comes into the body, the stomach rises. When the breath goes out, the stomach falls. When it rises, just say rising. When it falls, falling. If you do have questions, you can post them in the chat. I'll do some talking here in the beginning, but you're welcome to begin posting. Once we start answering questions, we'll only allow questions in the chat from there on. So tonight I thought I'd talk a little bit about something that is highly important, high on the important list for meditators. Something that we should all keep in mind. And it's something that's useful as a sort of advice It's a question that comes up often uh, among meditation practitioners. Question of how to succeed. We get lots of questions about how do you know if you're doing it right? How do you know if you're progressing? Questions about what is the goal of meditation? But the real question I think that all of these are asking is uh, how, how, do I, how do I succeed? How do I make sure I'm succeeding? How do I know if I'm succeeding? Am I doing it right to make sure that I succeed? Am I doing what needs to be done? A lot of worry around this and new meditators and doubt. Sometimes even doubt about what it means to succeed. And so the topic of success, it, it, it even goes beyond meditation. The topic of success is I think high on our list of priorities to answer how to succeed, what does success look like? So is this something I want to, to do want to do based on what it would mean to succeed in this activity? And so something I have talked about many occasions, but 
really can't emphasize enough is the Buddha's take on success. It's not really what the, the they're called in Pali. They're called the idipada. There's four four things. It's a simple list. But the word idi, idi doesn't quite mean success, but it does have a sense of accomplishment, mastery, in a sense, power, literally. So when you engage in some activity, some endeavor, you want to get good at it. You want to be strong in it, strong in your field. You don't want to just weakly do something and get no result out of it. You want to do it efficiently, effectively. Idhi is, is a sort of thing that relates to success when you do something well. The idipada, these are the roads to power. But they really are what, what allows you to succeed in anything. If you want to be a terrible, bad, evil person and hurt people or cause problems for others, manipulate others, take advantage of them, Even then, you still need these four to succeed. If you want to succeed in business, you want to succeed in romance. Romance, I'm not quite sure, but I, I think you could apply them. I'm, I'm not sure I've ever thought of that. Certainly never tried. Um... You want to succeed in study. If you want to succeed in being happy in a worldly sense, if you want to succeed in being happy in a, in a spiritual sense, if you want to succeed in gaining spiritual powers, mental, magical powers, if you want to succeed in understanding the truth of life, the truth of reality, the truth of nature. And if you want to become free from suffering, if you want to succeed in that, these four, they're so universal. They're the kind of thing you can talk about in any realm, in any, in any context. The only thing they can't help you do is fail, I think. That's about it. So what are the four idipada? We have chanda. Chanda means means desire or liking, passion doesn't really have one good translation in English, I don't think. It's a word that is used in different contexts, just like English words like love. Love is used in so many different ways to the point where it doesn't really mean anything. It means a set of things. Chanda is like that. It gives you a sense of the sort of thing you're talking about. But here it means you have to have some kind of interest in what you're doing. I think the most neutral way of describing it that applies to everything is interest. You have to be interested in it. And you have to be content doing it, happy to be doing it. Now, it's possible to succeed to some extent in something you're miserable at, but it really isn't to your benefit to be miserable and dislike doing something. Sure, you can do it. But if you want to get really good at something and really become a master of anything, and get really good results, one of the most important tools is the desire to succeed, the desire to do. Now in meditation practice, of course, it doesn't look like desire, but it's how you can describe it in most contexts. And even, even in meditation, we do talk about it as chanda. 
But if you want to kill people, well, you have to be keen on doing it. It's not easy to hurt others if you don't have a desire to hurt them. For good, for good people, it's hard to do evil deeds because they're very much disinclined to do them. Someone who is a good person will be very upset at the thought of hurting others. And people who are keen on evil deeds have this keenness, this sense of inclination when they're happy to do it. Or someone who, who perhaps a butcher or a hunter who was thinking of the food will be very keen to kill because of their keenness, their, their, their desire for the outcome. Romance, if we want to go there, let's talk about romance. If you want to succeed, well, you have to really you have to really be involved in it. Why marriage fails is because people lose interest. You don't have any desire to make it work. Business, if you want to get ahead, you have to be ambitious. Ambition has a lot to do with chanda. And in the Dhamma, you need chanda. If you want to be a good person and do good deeds, you have to be keen on doing good deeds. But as I said, in the actual practice of meditation, in the actual cultivation of insight, of clarity of mind, of wisdom, it's not so much desire anymore. People come to meditation practice often with a great amount of desire and keenness, and they lose that. They lose some of that because there's a real desire that's often very much caught up with an ego, like a passion for becoming a meditator, getting good at it. And, and the ego related to your suffering. Oh, I'm suffering so much. I want to get rid of it. If only I didn't have all this suffering. But an advanced meditator sometimes might doubt and wonder or, or feel like they're struggling in a sense, because they're struggling to find a reason to meditate. It's like, I don't want to meditate anymore. And if I don't want to meditate, how do I keep meditating? But there is chanda. It's a different kind of chanda. It's kind of, in, in Thai they call chanda pajai, which means, pa means enough. Pajai means, it's hard to translate means being content with, accepting of. So it's very much like becoming accepting of. It's very much like uh, what a meditator becomes about meditation. They don't actually want to meditate in the sense of craving it or desiring it because, of course, that would be antithetical to the whole goal. But they want to, in a sort of colloquial sense, being inclined in that direction. But why are they inclined? It has nothing to do with a craving or, de or a desire per se. It has to do with wisdom and understanding, clarity, being the, the appropriate response. The appropriate response to someone for someone who has ignorance, to their ignorance, the appropriate response is cultivating clarity and understanding. It's just appropriate. Like when a person's sick, the appropriate thing is to go to the doctor. You could say they want to go to the doctor, but do they really want to? They don't really have a desire or craving. It's not They're not passionate about going to the doctor, but they can be quite intent on it. Quite a lot of chanda there when, when you're sick or dying or when you've broken a bone or bleeding out or shot with a gun or something. You aren't craving to go to the doctor. With meditation, we don't crave to meditate. But it's very there's a, there's a great intention to meditate, a great keenness on it. That's that's chanda. The second one is virya. Virya means effort or energy. 
And so it goes without saying, if you're going to succeed in anything, if you're going to succeed in the world, you need energy. If you're going to succeed in relationships, if you're going to succeed in work or study. One of the great things about meditation is how much energy it gives you for worldly things. How much easier you find it to do things that were arduous. On the other hand, your chanda, one thing that meditation does is it reduces your keenness on worldly things, and so you find it hard to succeed. You find it harder to succeed at things in meditation, not because you don't have the energy, but because you don't have the chanda. Whether it's work or school or relationships, you just feel that you don't have the interest in it. Meditation does sap your interest in worldly things. but meditation gives you energy to do things that you need to do. So you find it much easier to do things that are necessary, and even though you might not have the interest to do them, you are you have a, 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 an intention to do them. You're, you're content to do them, content to support yourself, content to do work. Meditators often have this question of how do you do things when you no longer want to do them? And so again, you have this different kind of inclination. It's, it's based on wisdom and understanding that you need to do things. So for meditators to have chanda for things that seem meaningless is to find meaning in them, to find meaning in the fact that you have to do them. And then you find that you can put out, you can have great media, great effort, even for things that you no longer want to do. And the great effort is because you know you should do them. You know they're the right thing to do. It's right to fulfill your livelihood. It's right to have relationships with people in terms of your responsibilities towards each other, and so on. Avirya in meditation practice. The biggest problem, of course, is not having enough energy in the practice, but also putting out too much energy. And by putting out too much energy really means when people focus on forcing, focus on pushing themselves to meditate, pushing them when they don't have chanda, right? You don't want to do it, but you force yourself to do it. Another one is the mind isn't behaving. So should I force myself to focus? Should I push myself? And you think by effort alone you can accomplish that. But effort doesn't really mean either of those things. Effort is really quite simple. It's the effort to do the work, the effort to apply the technique. It's the difference between letting the mind drift and wander, being negligent when you have the opportunity to be mindful and, and being mindful, you'll find that actually just the practice of mindfulness cultivates effort together with it because the, the, there's an effort involved in doing it. You'll find that mindfulness requires you to or builds energy you'll find yourself becoming more energetic as a result of applying the technique it's involved in saying rising falling it's much easier much simpler much more comforting to just watch the stomach for example but to have to actually say to yourself rising falling is uncomfortable it's like work a lot of people beginning complain about it it's not as pleasant but working out, whether you're working out the body or the mind, is not pleasant, not in the beginning, not when you're weak, 
Learning a new skill is never pleasant, it's uncomfortable. But the keenness is not in how comfortable or pleasant it is. The keenness, the keenness is in how, how uh, strengthening it is, how much cultivation is involved. So in meditation, the biggest thing about vidya is to pay attention to the actual practice of mindfulness. Are you actually applying the practice? Are you actually saying to yourself, rising, falling? When you feel pain, do you say to yourself, pain, pain? Because there's effort involved there. Laziness is when you slack off, when you just let the mind coast. I'll just watch things for a while. The development of vidya in order to really succeed, requires you to actually apply the practice and again and again apply it. The great effort is involved in not just doing it once or twice, but systematically, methodically, again and again applying the practice and applying it universally, so not letting the mind slip. When, when you start to like something or enjoy something, you forget to note or you get lazy sloppy the third one is citta citta means citta means literally mind but here it means focus or you could say keeping your mind on something so if you want to succeed in anything you need to focus you need to keep your mind on it And this means you need to give it attention. Not only do you want to do it, you have to actually work at it. You, you, you have to work at it, and that means keeping it in focus. Best way to be energetic about something is to actually put, put some attention, give it some attention. So if you don't pay attention to your work or to your studies, they don't actually take the time to, this is like actually do the work. No? You can't possibly succeed. When you're doing physical labor, if you just let your mind wander and don't pay attention, it's very easy to, to ruin your work or even hurt yourself depending on what you're doing. Keep your mind on the, on the ball. Keep your mind on the activity. Of course, mindfulness is very good for this as well. Mindfulness is good for everything in life, not just for the meditation itself. Keep you focused on what you're doing, keep you present. Jitta. In meditation, of course, it means not only paying attention to the objects, so you don't just repeat mindlessly to yourself, rising, falling, or pain. You have to actually be as a response to actually experiencing it. When the foot starts to move, then you start saying, step. When the stomach starts to rise, you start saying, rise. Rising should be at the end so that you're actually with, your mind is actually with the object. This is citta. But it also means paying attention to the practice in the sense of coming back to it. During your meditation session, coming back to the object again and again but also keeping it in mind throughout your daily life. Sometimes you have to do some work that doesn't let you be mindful because your mind is otherwise preoccupied. So you try to be a little mindful, but just like when you put down a suitcase, you might put it down for a while, but when you're, when, when you're done what you had to do, pick it back up again. Jitta, always be ready to pick, pick the practice up whenever you can. Even when you're doing something, you can take a break and apply the practice whenever it comes to you. And the fourth one is vimangsa. Vimangsa is like discernment. It relates to wisdom, really, but vimangsa means discernment in the sense of being able to analyze your activity. 
and this is important, it's important to understand this fourth one as being different from actually doing the work or doing it well. It's about being able to analyze and adjust. It's a skill that we mostly have, generally speaking. And it, it very much benefits from mindfulness as well, because when you're present and mindful, it's so, so helpful in helping you see when you're doing something inefficiently or wrong. It's one of the things about the greatness of meditation practice that it's self-correcting because of the mindfulness. Because of being mindful, you're able to see when you're doing it inefficiently or wrong. But in a, for a beginner especially, and really for any meditator, it's very important to step back and analyze and, and I mean, not always be thinking about your practice, but to take some time to check and to notice. If you find your practice is unpleasant, uncomfortable, you have to be clear about why that is. Sometimes it's because you're ignoring something. If your practice is very pleasant, it can be it can be misleading with lack of vimangsa, with lack of discernment. You might, you might start to get lulled into a sense of security. Oh, it's very pleasant. I must be doing something right. But if you don't step back, you can't see whether it's actually, whether you're actually practicing correctly because it has nothing to do with whether your practice is pleasant or unpleasant. But both of these can get you distracted. So Vimangsa lets you actually see, am I missing something? Am I doing something improperly? And you can see whether you're forcing things or pushing too hard or not pushing hard enough. I mean, not actually whether you're slacking off, for example. You can see whether you're ignoring something. Am I missing this? Oh, I'm getting very angry or depressed or sad or afraid or or I'm liking things or craving things. Oh, I'm not noticing that. I'm not noting that. Uh, this goes with everything you know, in life. You have to be discerning. If you want to do things properly, you have to be ready to adjust and adapt. Sometimes in work, you have to adapt to be more efficient. In relationships, not just romantic relationships, but all of us in our relationships with others, we have to be discerning and see whether we're doing something that's hurting others or causing problems for others. Ability to adapt, to adjust. So these four are the four idipada, they're the four roads to power or success if you want to succeed in anything. Very useful for everyone in the world, useful for meditators, not just in meditation, but as a means of living their lives, because as I said, meditation practice helps us to, to cultivate these in a worldly sense as well. They're very easy, much easier for us to cultivate and so much easier for us to succeed in worldly affairs as well. Okay, so now we're going to move into the question and answer period. Hopefully this works well. We have our questioners standing by. I think Chris is doing the asking now. That's right, Bhante. All right, I'm ready when you are. And from now on, only questions in the chat, please. And only questions about meditation, please. Questions that you need an answer to, questions that are important to you. Okay, let's begin. How should one prepare themselves for the at-home meditation course? There's, well, there's technically no preparation necessary. I don't know technically. I mean, maybe practically there's none. Technically there is, but practically what happens is someone comes to the first meeting and I tell them how to prepare. So they have to spend a week preparing. But if you want to do that in advance so that you, you can get a jump on it, I can tell you now, you have to read the booklet, you have to do one week of practice, half walking, half sitting, do walking first and then sitting and do them together, try to do some in the morning and some in the evening, but minimum is one hour a day, half walking, half sitting, uh, if you do more than that, that's great, 
The goal by the end of the course is to get up to two hours, but you don't have to think about that in the beginning. What you do have to think about is that that's a requirement by the end, so you have to be prepared. Some people, their schedule might not allow for it, so to be prepared to clear your schedule to allow for getting up to at least two hours. Of course, if you do more than that every day, that's great. Uh, you have to keep the five precepts, so those are the requirements. That's how I would prepare. Is it like putting the cart before the horse to say, this is anicca or anatta in dealing with our defilements? Rather, are they wisdom to be realized as a result of the practice, which is satipatthana? That's a fairly good way of putting it. It's putting the cart before the horse. The way they describe it uh, in, in, in our tradition, I've heard people describe it as, um, there's no good English translation. This one teacher, he called it vipassanik, Nuk means to to think, to 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 ponder, to to reflect upon. So instead of vipassana, it's vipassanik, which it's just a play on words. It means uh, thinking, insight from thinking. So it, it's there's a it's kind of drug. I mean, it's in the sense of a put down. It's it's absolutely not as uh, it's not on par with actually seeing things for yourself. And so it's a bit of a crutch. Now, there is something to uh, taking time to step back when things are going difficult, going, uh, when things are going bad or, or when going gets difficult. To step back and see why that is and to see what you might be missing and to realize impermanent suffering and non-self. See, sometimes in meditation you get discouraged because of three characteristics. You think there's something wrong because your expectations are that things should be stable, satisfying, and controllable. So knowing about these can be useful so that when you do see them, you're not uh, confused by that and you don't work against it and so that you don't have expectations in the practice that it's going to make everything stable, satisfying, and controllable. It's, it's not. It's going to make you more flexible so that as things change, and disappoint you, you become less disappointed, less disturbed by the change. With Shila, Samadhi, and Panya, is Panya the result of Samadhi, or the practice? So Sila means ethics, Samadhi means concentration, and Panya means wisdom. Wisdom is the result of the, the concentration, the focus. Now, that, that being said, not all focus is going to bring wisdom, but proper focus will. It's so hard for me to start my coursework because I'm always procrastinating. What should I note? Well, procrastinating, I've talked about this before, it's either usually I think desire or aversion, and you can note those. It can also be laziness, again, if you don't have chanda for doing your coursework. So a part of that is going to be reevaluating why you're doing it, and you either don't, you either stop doing it, or you be con content in the fact that you have to do it and it's appropriate to do it. So you have to tell, ask yourself if it's appropriate to do it. If it's appropriate to do it, you can build chanda based on that. It's a good question for today's talk because you need chanda, virya, chitta, vimangsa to do all these things. And probably with procrastinating, there's a lack of chanda. And because you know things like that are not things that you crave or desire to do. So you have to give yourself a little talking to and work things out in your mind as to it being something that's important to do. And when it's important to do, you, you're able to do it. And you'll find when you're mindful, you can overcome any kind of aversion or uh, 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 sort of ennui, perhaps, of not wanting to do something. Is noting easier when we pull back and step back 
instead of being too involved and entranced by happenings in current moment? You shouldn't have to pull back or step back or be entranced. That's not a part of the practice. See, these kind of things are what's going to come up through the practice. And when they do, you can note them when you're entranced or when you find yourself recoiling or stepping back. But you shouldn't do either of them. So you don't have to do much. You just have to apply the technique and let your mind start to work out the best way to do it. Your mind will start to show you what you're doing wrong, your bad habits, the habits that are inefficient. Really keep it quite simple. Just do it and, and watch when your mind does things this way or that way. I will start a job as a software engineer. How can I train myself to incorporate the practice on this job as much as possible? When I'll be coding, my mind will be concentrated, absorbed in concepts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's to be expected. Again, your mind is engaged in different activities. So there's going to be moments where you can apply the mindfulness still, like you might get frustrated with your work or something like that. Um, but you can also take breaks. So, so basically two things. One, take breaks, and two, be mindful whenever you can. Don't expect that you should be able to be mindful the whole time, every moment when you're coding, because no, your mind is engaged in other practices. Just try and do it in between. I mean, if that looks like taking a five-minute, ten-minute break, or if it means uh, moments, should really be both probably. shouldn't do too much work for too long of a time. You don't do even, you aren't even very efficient that way, apparently. Is it right to sit for two hours in a single stretch for meditation three times a day? So we do walking and sitting. I would recommend to do an hour walking, an hour sitting maximum. Uh, but that's a, that's a pretty good way of describing it. If you're doing it three times a day, I would say to do two hours at a stretch is pretty good. If you do more than that, same thing. But if, you, if you're doing less than three times a day, um, you might find it challenging to do two hours in the morning, two hours in the evening, because you're just not as mindful the rest of the day, and so th th there's less quality involved. Should we elongate or note things twice? How should we determine this? Um, yeah, I guess you have to sort of draw the line somewhere. There's no, I mean, there's no hard and fast rule, but if you're noting something, if it takes a long time, the only way I would elongate them is with things like rising and falling. Even then I would just note it once. I would say really only for movements, would you note rising or stepping right? You're elongating it to the, the movement. But with everything else, I would use repetition. In walking meditation, a sound captures the attention, so I go stopping. Then I have to observe what's there, right? Which most cases is confused. I don't have to blindly say listening, right? It would be hearing, but yeah, if you're confused instead, you can note that instead. Again, no hard and fast rules. You just try and be mindful of what's present. Don't be too hung up on, on the way it, you have to do it this way or that way, As except for the, the actual noting itself. Like you, you have to be clear about what we mean by that. We mean reminding yourself about what something actually is. Like you couldn't say what you want it to be. If you're unhappy, you couldn't say happy, happy, hoping that somehow that would make you happy. You have to note things as they are. That you have to be strict about. How do I use meditation to help me see my daydreaming more clearly? I tend to do maladaptive daydreaming a lot during the day. I've never heard of that. Um, 
The problem with daydreaming is you're already kind of lost, right? You've already kind of got distracted. But once you realize that you're daydreaming, I mean, daydreaming is just a word. Once you realize that you're either thinking or seeing, uh, you can note that as wandering or thinking, seeing, and you can note emotions involved as well. That'll help you, prevent you from, from getting lost. How can one prevent physical things from happening during meditation, such as tearing of the eyes from what feels like a swelling of energy traveling upwards into the top of the head? So we don't try and prevent things in meditation. The, the question sort of implies, and questions like this, it's common, they imply that there's something wrong with what's happening, or it's the problem, and it's not a problem. So if there's tearing of the eyes, then you'd say feeling. If there's a swelling of energy, you would say feeling as well. Just be feeling, feeling. Is there any difference on noting things that occur passively without our wanting, like rising, or actively because we want it, like moving? Shouldn't the practice just be passively observing? The practice is not quite passively observing, but, but I get the point. The point is, um, the practice is really reminding, and it's, so it's got a sense higher than observing. It's about straightening, but well, it's not your question, but just to be clear, the, the practice should be um, reminding, which has, has a straightening quality of of helping the mind see it more clearly and more objectively. Um, so that's the actual practice, but there's sort of a, what you could call, I guess, a metta, like an, a, an external shell of the practice, which is the actual technique. And so you could say we, we intentionally sit down and cross our legs, but we also intentionally walk. Now the intentional walking isn't the actual practice, but it kind of is practically the practice. You see what I mean? Like you say, I'm going to do walking meditation, but actually the walking is extraneous to the actual practice. You do it just like in a lab. If you're in a psych lab, for example, well, have your subjects do something, but the doing the thing isn't the point. You want to see how they're going to react to it. So, so we do the walking meditation. Not That's not the actual practice, but do it and then apply the practice to that. You see, it's like a test. Let's see what happens when I walk back and forth. Let's see, let's let's apply mindfulness to that because once you can do it with that, then you can apply it in, in life as well when you do other things. But there's no difference with the actual technique. It's just you have the added, you will have the added intention, like when you intend to walk. So when you start walking, you can say intending to walk or wanting to walk or something. If I meditate, should I tolerate whatever others do to me or others' defilements? Well, intolerance is a problem, right? Intolerance is habit-forming and it, it leads to bitterness and irritation and anger and hatred and so on. So let's be clear that tolerating is absolutely necessary, but that tolerating is only the mental tolerating. You have to be able to distinguish physically, and this is sort of related to the other similar to the other to the last question that you tolerate doesn't doesn't mean that physically in the world you you um you're inactive so tolerance doesn't mean that you don't reply like if someone throws a punch at you or, or like lifts a a weapon or a stick and, and is going to hit you you tolerate that but it doesn't mean that you let them hit you. You could move out of the way, but with tolerance, you see what I mean? So you have no no emotional reaction. That's the point, is to be able to uh, react appropriately. Sometimes you do let people hit you. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But it makes more sense for both of your sake to step out of the way. The physical is not 
as important as the mental. It's the mental intolerance that or tolerance that's important. But once you have mental tolerance, and more importantly, once you have mindfulness, you'll just do things that are appropriate. Someone goes to hit you with a stick or something, well, you step out of the way if you can. You don't get upset about it, and if they still hit you, well, that's just the way it works. And so really with every anything, if people are manipulative, it might make you think you should you know, stay away from this person, but you're not intolerant. Right? You kind of are. We would say that's intolerant, but it's not. You tolerate it, yeah. but you also apply the wisdom of what, what's appropriate to do in response. That's how, it, that's how it looks like. So we wouldn't quite call it tolerance because sometimes you do tolerate it, sometimes you don't, but internally, mentally, you're always tolerant. Is there a need to increase the length of our meditation sessions over time? So it should be twofold. You, you do more throughout the day, like more, more times meditating throughout the day, and also increase the time. But I wouldn't increase it beyond one hour each. One hour walking, one hour sitting. If you do more, then just do it again. But don't don't do longer, fewer longer sessions, or more shorter sessions. Sessions, right? There should be a, a sort of a balance there between length of time and number of session, sessions. If I am meditating and something pops into my head, maybe a memory, is it right to view that as a subconscious mind? That seems to be that our awake mind cannot see everything going on in our mind. So we don't try and view things this way or that. If something pops into your head, you just note that. We don't go beyond that. There's not no reason or no value in going beyond that. I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate, but just stick to that teaching. There's a link to the booklet in the description. I tried walking meditation. It was difficult because of broken slash no sidewalk on the stretch outside my house. I have to be alert constantly about vehicles. It could be dangerous. Any suggestions? So I get this sort of thing a lot, and I'm, I guess the, the booklet doesn't make quite clear, or you have to read it carefully to see, perhaps. But walking and sitting meditation should be done in the same place, so people don't realize we're talking about walking in your room. Wherever you do the sitting, do the walking there as well. You only need about 10, 15 feet. But, uh, you know, so clear some space in your room, in one of the rooms of your house walk from one wall to the other, back and forth. I feel like I'm approaching a midlife crisis. I feel as though I've wasted my life with many regrets, and now those feelings, thoughts, and memories are overwhelming. Can meditation really help with this? Oh yeah, absolutely, because feelings, thoughts, and memories are just feelings, thoughts, and memories, and the problem is not particularly them, it's your reaction to them and your perpetuating of certain feelings and reactions. So what meditation does is it helps you sort all that out, sort out your memories, sort out your perceptions of now, you know, how you perceive your situation now, and all the identity, because there's so many strings. This is what the Buddha called sota, streams, but they're like connections where we pour, pour our energy into uh, into situations and into aspects of our experience, like how much money I have, how successful I am, uh, how many friends I have, how how happy I am, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Even how good I am in spiritually and meditation, that sort of thing. We pour our mind and our heart. We we, we cling to these things. And so we create all sorts of connections where there really doesn't need to be any. Just because something is a certain way doesn't mean you have to react in in a in a certain way. 
our reactions can be independent and really should be independent and, and objective, trying to just see things as they are. So this is the situation I'm in. There's really no qualitative uh, analysis necessary. You don't have to interpret your situation as being successful or a failure or so on. You just have to learn to see it as it is. And that's what meditation works towards. Things are, they are what they are. It is what it is. Do you have any advice for meditating before big life events that will drastically change our lives for better or worse? Or maybe for harder or for easier is a better way to put it? I mean, I guess I could just say that meditation probably will help with all that. And so, as with everything, practice meditation. Just practice. If something, it's a very good reason. If there are meaningful life changes, then it's a very good reason to practice meditation beforehand. Is it okay when I see unwanted imaginations while meditating? I switch my mind to feel like a lotus that is hydrophobic to the dirty water, and my mind is empty again? Or do I accept the thoughts and analyze? I think uh, neither is a very good description of what we do, so I would recommend reading our booklet on how to meditate, if you haven't done that yet. Uh, maybe do an at-home meditation course if you're really interested in learning this technique. How should I explain my meditation to my parents? I live in the same house, and I don't know how they would accept doing hours of meditation in my room. Hmm. Well, you can try and try and explain it objectively. You don't have to tell them that there's this guy who wears bed sheet, you know, who wears robes with a shaved head and in an Asian religion talking about long dead teachers is the one who taught it to you. You can talk about about it in sort of rational terms, you know, what, what is it actually doing? Practical terms, what are you actually doing? Try and make it clear, because even just the word meditation evokes certain prejudices, prejudices in people. It means so many different things. It's a word that doesn't really mean anything either. It doesn't mean anything specific. Mindfulness is often what people call this. Uh, if that works, that works. But just that you're spending some time uh, working with your mind spending some time learning more about how your mind works. And you can describe what you actually do, that you're actually just trying to note things and see things as they are without any prejudice or any bias. There's no dogma behind this. There's no religious context. You really try and approach it mindful, mindfully. And you should find that you're able to meet them halfway or meet them where they're best able to understand it. I don't I mean I don't know your situation. Ultimately I would say mostly it's really none of their business um, unless they want it to be. And that's either positive or negative. So you can try to just trivialize it and not not make such a big deal out of it. But if they're interested in what you're doing either negatively or positively then yeah you can apply it. Make take some time to talk to them about it, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't. Again, I guess the point is I wouldn't make too much of a deal out of it. Meet them where they want. If they are making a deal out of it, then you respond to that. But don't go out of your way to try to explain. I would, I would, as with all things, just try and do what needs to be done and then let it go.
Should we cultivate an inclination on exploring how things cease? Like, okay, I feel sad, let me see how long this lasts. Now I feel angry, let me see how long this lasts. Until no more things to note. No more things to note. Um, I, I mean, I think probably not what, the way you're saying it, but we do try to note things until they cease. And if after a long time, then you just, if they don't cease, then just go back to the rising, falling, or whatever you're doing. But we don't actively try and investigate when they're going to cease. That would be future, thinking about the future. What can I do so that noting naturally arises? Well, lots of things you can associate with people who practice as well. You can study to, to learn why you should do it. Uh, you can engage in formal meditation practice. But ultimately, you, it's the one thing that you have to do yourself. It doesn't no, it doesn't arise naturally per se. It's what you what you do, and that practically speaking, it's what you do. Everything else falls in comes into play naturally, but mindfulness is what you have to apply. You have to sort of think of it like that. I have found today's topic very interesting. Any sutta recommendations about this particular topic so that I may learn more? Not really. A lot of this, the sutta, I mean, I would read all the Buddha's teaching, of course, and there's going to be a lot of it about the various ones, but it's a fairly brief teaching, terse teaching. It's one of those things that the Buddha just taught as a list. Again, I, I wouldn't put too much reliance on on theory, like because it it, it res something resonates with you, you have to be mindful of that as well. And it's not necessarily a sign that that it's actually going to be helpful, right? It can be a craving. You you feel good about hearing that, and it it encourages you, and so you want to hear more, and so you go and study more and more, and it just becomes another addiction. I mean, not to put down. I mean, it's great. I'm glad you appreciated it, but. Um, you don't really have to go for more. Once, once you've gained something from the teaching, you know, be be happy about that and and allow that to guide you towards practice. You don't need to learn more about it. You need to now go and apply it. I would say generally that's the case. Should we ever pay specific attention to noting the discrete nature of time, or should we just note this thought when we have it and keep meditating? Just note that thought when you have it and keep meditating. In the Lankavatara Sutta, the Buddha says only the mind is. If only the mind is, then controlling it becomes impossible. Could you please explain this? All right, this isn't top tier, is it? No, Bhante. The Lankavatra Sutta is not a Theravada Buddhist text. That's why it's called a sutra. They don't use that word. We use sutta. It's just, it's the same word. It's a different language, though. Um, so I don't even, I don't even think I've ever read that. Although I have heard this theory, this doctrine, we don't subscribe to that theory, so I can't answer the question. Let's end it there if there are no more meditation questions. Oh, here's one. Go for that one. But I'll end it. To that. Well, this will be the, this will be, sorry? I wouldn't call it a meditation question, but I'll bring it That's up. That's good. Well, well, questions that people need an answer to. I didn't mean to say only meditation questions. Should be related to meditation, but can also be you need an answer. I mean, it's important to you. Um, but this will be the last one. So now you're welcome to say things in chat as long as they're mindful and kind and thoughtful. I have dreams of demons torturing me, and these dreams cause physical pain. Do you have any advice? But you may not have read our booklet, probably not. So I'd recommend starting there, reading our booklet and 
maybe even taking an, a meditation course. Um, but you know, physical pain, mental pain, there's like fear or, or worry about it, but even just physical pain, it's, these are just experiences. So try and take them as such. If you're interested, you read the booklet and sign up for a course. So that's all. Thank you all for coming out. Appreciate the good questions and the interest. And thank you for all the people who helped. That worked really well. Everything from my end went off without a hitch. I don't know what the, we have Olivia actually watching the stream to make sure that the quality output is actually good. We haven't had that before, I think. Someone watching the actual stream to make sure volume levels are correct and so on. So that's great. I really, this is really quite coming together and I appreciate that. Thank you guys. Have a good night, everyone. Sadhu. Sadhu.